the labor of gratitude. There's an important principle in Judaism, a source of hope, and also one of the structuring principles of the Torah. It's the principle that Magdim HaKadosh Baruch Hu Lamaka. It's the principle that God creates the cure before the disease. Bad things may happen, but God has already given us the remedy if we know where to look for it. And this is a key to understanding truma. Though not all commentators agree, its real significance is that it's God's answer in advance to the sin of the golden calf. In strict chronological terms, it's out of place here. It and Tetzave should have appeared after Kitisa, which tells the story of the calf. It's set here before the sin to tell us that the cure existed before the disease, the Tikkun before the Kilkul, the mending before the fracture, the rectification before the sin. So to understand Truma and the whole phenomenon of the Mishkan, the sanctuary, and all that it entails, we have first to understand what went wrong at the time of the golden calf. Here the Torah is very subtle and gives us in Kitisa a narrative that can be understood at three quite different levels. The first and most obvious is that the sin of the golden calf was due to a failure of leadership on the part of Aaron. This is the overwhelming impression we receive on first reading Shemos chapter 32. We sense that Aaron should have resisted the people's clamor. He should have told them to be patient. He should have shown leadership. He didn't. When Moses came down the mountain and asked him what he had done, Aaron replied, Don't be angry, my lord. You know how prone these people are to evil. They said to me, Make an oracle to lead us, since we don't know what's happened to Moses, the man who took us out of Egypt. So I told them, Whoever has any gold jewelry, take it off. Then they gave me the gold, and I threw it into the fire, and out came this calf. This is a failure of responsibility. It's also a spectacular act of denial. I threw it into the fire and out came this calf. So the first reading of the story is that it's about Aaron's failure. But that's only the first level. If you read deeper, you'll see that it's about Moses. It was his absence from the camp that created the crisis in the first place. We read the people began to realize that Moses was taking a long time to come down from the mountain. They gathered around Aaron and said to him, make us an oracle to lead us. We've no idea what happened to Moses, the man who brought us out of Egypt. God told Moses what was happening and said, Lech ki go down because your people whom you brought out of Egypt have wrought ruin. The undertone is clear, go down suggests that God was telling Moses that his place was with the people at the foot of the mountain, not with God at the top. Your people implies that God was telling Moses that the people were his problem, not God's. He was about to disown them. Moses urgently prayed to God for forgiveness and then descended. What follows is a whirlwind of action. Moses descends, see what has happened, breaks the tablets, burns the calf, mixes its ashes with water and makes the people drink, then summons help in punishing the wrongdoers. He's become the leader in the midst of the people, restoring order, where a moment before there'd been chaos. On this reading, the central feature was Moses. He'd been the strongest of strong leaders, but the result was, though, that when he wasn't there, the people panicked. That is the downside of strong leadership. But then, there follows a chapter, Shmos Lamed Gimel, Exodus 33, that is one of the hardest in the whole Torah to understand. 
It begins with God announcing that though he would send an angel or a messenger to accompany the people on the rest of the journey, he himself wouldn't be in their midst because you are an umkishera of a stiff-necked people and I might destroy you on the way. And this deeply distresses the people. Then in verses 12 to 23, Moses challenges God on this verdict. He wants God's presence to go with the people. He asks, let me know your ways and pray, let me see your glory. Now, this is very hard to understand, the entire exchange between Moses and God. One of the most intense in the whole Torah has stopped being about sin and forgiveness. It seems almost to be a, a metaphysical inquiry into the nature of God. What's its connection with the golden calf? It's what happens between these two episodes that is really puzzling. The text says that Moses took his tent and pitched it for himself outside the camp, far from the camp. Now, this must surely have been precisely the wrong thing to do. If, as God in the text have implied, the problem had been the distance of Moses as a leader, then the single most important thing for him to do now would be to stay in the people's midst, not position himself outside the camp. Moreover, the Torah has just told us that God had said he wouldn't be in the midst of the people, and this caused the people distress. So if God isn't in the midst of the people, and Moses isn't in the midst of the people, you are doubling their distress. Something deep and puzzling is happening here. It seems to me that in Exodus 33, Moses is undertaking the most courageous act of his life. He is, in effect, saying to God, it isn't Aaron who is the problem. It isn't me who is the problem. It's your distance from the people that is the problem. They are terrified of you. They have witnessed your overwhelming power. They've seen you bring the greatest empire the world has ever known to its knees. They've seen you turn the sea into dry land, send food down from heaven, bring water from a rock, when they heard your voice at Mount Sinai, they came to me and begged me to be an intermediary. They said, you speak to us and we will hear, but let not God speak to us, let us lest we die. They made a calf. Says Moses, not because they wanted to worship an idol, but because they wanted some symbol of your presence that wasn't terrifying. They need you to be close. They need to sense you, not in the sky or at the top of the mountain, but in the midst of the camp. And even if they cannot see your face, because no one can do that, at least let them see your glory. That, it seems to me, is Moses' request, to which this week's parasha is the answer. Let them make for me a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst. This is the first time in the Torah that we've heard the word, the verb, shachem, to dwell, in relation to God. Literally, the word shachem means a neighbor, somebody who lives next door, somebody who's close to us. And from this, of course, is derived the key word in Judaism, in post-biblical Judaism, shechina, which means God as he is close to us, not as he is transcendent. And this it's a very daring idea. God is a shachem, as a close neighbor. In terms of the theology of the Torah, the idea of the Mishkan, a sanctuary or a temple, a physical home for God's glory, is very paradoxical. Don't forget, God is beyond space. 
as Shlomo Amalek, King Solomon said at the inauguration of the first temple, behold the heavens and the heavens of the heavens can't encompass you, how much less this house? Or as Isaiah said in God's name, the heavens are my throne, the earth is my footstool, what house shall you build for me? Where can my resting place be? The answer, as the Jewish mystics stressed, is that God doesn't live in the building, but in the hearts of the builders. Let them make me a sanctuary and I will dwell among them, not in it, but among them. But how, though, does this happen? What human act causes the divine presence to live within the camp, the community? The answer is the name of our parasha, truma, meaning a gift, a contribution. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Tell the Israelites to bring me an offering. Until that moment, the Israelites had been the recipients of God's miracles and deliverances. He had taken them from slavery to freedom, done miracles for them. There was only one thing God had not yet done, namely, give the Israelites the chance of giving something to God. The very idea sounds absurd. How can we, God's creations, give back to God who made us all we have is his? As David said at the gathering he convened at the end of his life to initiate the project of building the temple, he says to God, wealth and honor come from you. You are the ruler of all things. Who am I and who are my people that we should be able to give as generously as this? Everything comes from you. And we have given you only what comes from your hand. But this was the logic of the Mishkan. God's greatest gift to us is the ability to give to him. From a Judaic perspective, the whole idea is fraught with risk. The idea that God needs gifts is close to paganism, to heresy. And yet, knowing the risk, God allowed himself to be persuaded by Moses to cause his spirit to rest within the camp and allow the Israelites to give something back to God. With the Mishkan, God stopped being distant and became close, Shachem, a neighbor, the God who lives next door. At the heart of the idea of the sanctuary is what Lewis Hyde beautifully described as the labor of gratitude. His classic study, The Gift, looks at the role of the giving and receiving of gifts, for example, at critical moments of transition. He quotes the Talmudic story of a man whose daughter was about to get married, but who'd been told that she wouldn't survive to the end of the day. The next morning, the man visited his daughter and saw she was still alive. Unknown to both of them, when she hung up her hat after the wedding, its pin pierced a serpent that would otherwise have bitten and killed her. The father wanted to know what his daughter had done to deserve this divine intervention. She answered, a poor man came to the door yesterday. Everyone was so busy with the wedding preparations that they didn't have time to deal with him. So I took the portion that had been intended for me and I gave it to him. It was this act of generosity that was the cause of her miraculous deliverance. The construction of the sanctuary was fundamentally important because it gave the Israelites a chance to give back to God. And that is essential to human dignity. Later, Jewish law recognized that giving is so integral to dignity that they made a remarkable rule that even a poor person who depends on charity is still obliged to give charity. Because to be in a situation where you can only receive, not give, is to lack human dignity. And of course, that's what the Israelites were in relation to God until then. 
All they could do was receive God's miracles. They didn't have the chance to give. So the Mishkan became the home of the divine presence because God specified that it be built only out of truma, out of voluntary contributions. Each as their heart moved them. Giving creates a gracious society by enabling each of us to make our contribution to the public good. That's why the building of the sanctuary was the cure for the sin of the golden calf. For people that only received but couldn't give was trapped in dependency and a lack of self-respect. God allowed the people to come close to him and he to them by giving them the chance to give. That's why a society based on rights and not responsibilities, on what we claim from, not what we give to others, will always go wrong. It's why the most important gift a parent can give a child is the chance to give back. The etymology of the word truma hints at this. It means not just a contribution, but literally something raised up, laharim, to lift up. When we give, it's not just our contribution, but we ourselves who are raised up. We survive by what we are given, but we achieve dignity by what we give.